Thank you. Well, good evening. It has been two weeks since we've been together. Remember, remember last Wednesday night? Did anyone show up here last Wednesday night? Yeah, oh, yes, a, a couple loud yeses. I apologize. That was just, you are braver than the rest of us. You, you, you braved the snow. Uh, we had one of those crazy days. And, and just in the, in the future, as we think about that, though hopefully we're done with it, right? Um, in the future, anytime we, there's possible snow, it'll be on our website. We're gonna, we've, we've, got, we've got it posted on our website right at the top. So um, we had to make that call, and that was a tough one. We always hate doing that, but it can be a little dangerous even to get out there in this sort of weather. But anyway, I am so glad that we're able to be back together here. It does kind of crunch our series, though, doesn't it? We're, we're in this, like, six-week series, which, which brings us up to summer, our summer break. And so now it's a five-week series. So we were, we were joking tonight, either we're gonna, I'm going to talk twice as fast or we're just going to stay extra long tonight. So, um, no, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just do normal. But um, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, earlier this week, and they, they, were, they were telling me uh, about a new job that they have had. And I will be out of a job if I don't take the offering. So let me pause for a second. Thank you for shining that at me. Uh, let me invite our, our, our ushers to come. And um, we've already prayed. I know a lot of you have come prepared for giving, and you regularly give. So thank you for doing that. Sorry for forgetting. I always forget that. That's bad. But this friend of mine, she was telling me about this new job that, that, that she's taking in which she's going to be overseeing about 15 to 18 different uh, uh, other women who are in an office administrative kind of role. And she was, she was reading a book for it. And, and it's, a, it's an adaptation of a book that probably a lot of you have read, uh, The Five Love Languages. Have you, have you heard of that one before? It's, it's this idea that each one of us is kind of hardwired with, with a primary love language. That is, when I'm loved in one particular way, it could be words of affirmation, you know, as I get, you know, hey, you know, good job on that. It could, be, it could be physical touch. It could be a, you know, a high five, a you know, hand on the back, whatever it might be. Uh, it could be uh, acts of service, things that are done for me. It could be different gifts. So there's various different uh, of these love languages. And the idea is that I, am, I feel most loved when I am loved in concert with my particular love language. And so she was reading this book that was, how do you, how do you take that and, and go into the office place, into the, into the workplace, and show appreciation for those you're supervising, thinking about what is their primary love language. And she, you know, she just said, as I step into this new role, I, I really want to care for my employees. I really want to care for these people. So I want to understand what their love language is. How many of you, first of all, would say, I would love to have a boss who actually thinks about that. That would be a good thing, wouldn't it? Um, the, the big idea of this book and of this idea of love language is that, and I'm going to write this up here on the board. Can you see this? No. That doesn't work, does it? Okay. Uh, maybe I'll try a different color. Let me, let me try a different one. That's as the basis. I'm just going to continue. The basis of, that's not a whole lot better, is it? The basis of care, or we could put love, the basis of anything like that, is understanding. I ran out of room. All right, sorry. The, the basis of care, the basis of, of loving 
is this idea of understanding another. Um, and this is true regardless of what it is that you're caring about. Anyone ever buy like a pet that you did not know what was involved in its care until you had it home? Or, or you have a kid who bought a pet who had no idea you knew and it all fell on you, you know, to do. That's, my kids have this, uh, these hermit crabs that they just got from uh, a relative, which I so appreciate. And, you know, dad has to spray it down every night. Dad has to put salt water in there. And um, my wife and our, our second child, Brielle, recently just took on this project. They got all these, uh, oh, what are those plants called that have um, succulents? Succulents. So, you know, it's cactus and all this sort of thing. And, and they, they bought like 30 of them. And so there's all these things around our house, all these succulents. And we have to be real careful. You can't water them too much. And there has to be rock at the bottom. But, uh, you know, my wife's on, online on the internet with, with Brielle looking at how do we care for these things? How do we take care of them? Otherwise, they're going to die. So this is true whether it's, it's a pet, it's a plant, or it's a person. And um, we're in this series asking the what I would suggest is the most profound question that you or I will ever, ever ask in our lives, and that is, what is God like? See, it's the most important question. Jesus, Jesus one time defined the point of human life, the point of human existence, and John records it in John 17, 3, when Jesus said, now, this is eternal life, okay? That's, that's a biblical word for the goal, the aim, what, we're, what our arrows are all pointing to. This is eternal life, that you would know the Father, that you would know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. See, if we were made to run on the fuel that is God himself, I had better understand him correctly, right? Um, and here's the point. It's not just this idea that God is really concerned that I have all my theological you know, Q's and P's in order and dot and all my I's and all that. It's not as though God's some headmaster that at the end of time there's this big test. And if I fail the test, I don't get in. You know, that's oftentimes what we can think. That's not it at all. See, here's, here's the rub. Here's why this is a big idea. Whatever is ultimate in your life, whatever, whatever you really care about, what you love most, what your life orbits around, what you care or love most in life, you will, you will begin to, real slowly, you'll begin to resemble that thing. You'll begin to start looking like that thing. You'll begin to take on characteristics, or in some way, your life will become so integral to that thing that your existence won't really be full without it. Anyone ever notice in the Old Testament, if you've ever read these Old Testament stories of Israel, that um, Israel's neighbors, all of these pagan nations around them, the Canaanites and all these different groups with kind of odd names, anyone ever notice that they're in their worship, that their worship over time started mimicking how they understood God, how they answered that question, what is God like? It just started looking like that. Think about this. When they had a God who was a God of war, a violent God, their, their worship practices would involve things like cutting, self-mutilation, human sacrifice. When they had a God who, who was a fertility God, a God who was primarily concerned about the fertilities of the fields and people and so forth, they began uh, instilling temple prostitutes. 
orgies because they, they knew that that's what their God cared most about and what their God was like. So this is, this is an unavoidable reality in our lives that we all begin to, to uh, gravitate toward what it is that, how we answer the question, what is God like? And I would suggest that, that, that there's kind of this, this law within human nature that speaks of this. And we'll see if, I'm not sure how much you can see this, all this stuff up here, but I'll, I'll give it a try. I'll write a little thicker here. Is that any better? There is this love become law. You begin to look like, you begin to become whatever it is that you love most, what you orbit around. Anyone ever read uh, A.W. Tozer? He's got this little tiny book. It's, you know, it's kind of a modern classic. It's called The Knowledge of the Holy. And it's so cool. He, he starts out his book with this language. Listen to this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about G-O-D, okay? Whatever comes into our minds when we think about God, he says, is the most important thing about us. And he goes on to explain why. For this reason, the greatest question before the church is always God himself. And the most uh, pretentious fact about any person is what he, in his deep heart, conceives God to be like. And he finishes by this. I love this idea. He said, we tend by a secret law. Means this is how we live our lives. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God because we begin to look like that God. And so we're in this series called What is God Like? And we're exploring each week a different characteristic of what God is like. And in the process, we're, we're contrasting it with one of, one of our, our own neighboring faith philosophies. And see, we're doing this because if this law is accurate, then there are huge personal implications. Would you agree with that? If this, if this love become thing is a true human, uh, a law that, that applies to humanity, then there's going to be, it's, it's like of dire importance that we figure this out because it's going to determine who I become in this life and in the life to come. So week one, two weeks ago, we looked at this idea that, that God, God's not just some like powerful force, right? He's personal. But it's not just that. A lot of, lot of ideas have a God who's personal. He's not just personal. He's relational, we said. But the only way he can be essential, essentially relational, is that within himself, there is relationship going on. And so we see this idea that God is multi-personal. Again, what we call the Trinity, the teaching or the doctrine of the Trinity, that God has eternally been characterized by this dynamic, uh, mutually self-giving love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And because of this doctrine of the Trinity, we come to understand that God, isn't, God doesn't just love, he is love, right? Um, he's not merely personal, 
He's actually relational. He wants relationship. And, and maybe best of all, and I, I mentioned uh, some of these books that I'm kind of highlighting. It's just this great kids series of books. I'll mention this a little bit later this evening that, that answers the, this exact same question, walks through these different ideas or characteristics of God. Maybe best of all, because God is relational, this idea that we talked about last week. I feel like I'm a teacher. You know, I'm, I always turn this way. That's what my librarian used to do. But the wonder is that God invites us to become his adopted children, members of his family. He takes us into the love relationship that's existed forever between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So this is this idea that God's kind of frenetic, powerful relationship within himself spills over into relationship with us, and he invites us in. He doesn't want mere submission. He wants relationship. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to turn to a second characteristic or, or a second quality of God. And this is God's omnipotence. Looks like omnipotence. Right? Comes from the Latin omni meaning all, everything, no, no limits. Potent, we have a word in our language, something is potent, it's strong, it is powerful. The idea that God is all powerful or omnipotent. Now, this idea of God's power, God being omnipotent, comes very on, comes very early on in the story of God's self-revelation in Scripture. Look at Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. And I'm going to be kind of jumping around a lot of different verses here. If you have your Bibles, you can flip there. We're not going to have too many of them on the screen here tonight just because we're jumping around to several. Um, but Genesis 17:1 is the first of appearance of a, of a kind of a unique word that after this time, this is God interacting with Abraham, it's used a decent amount, quite a bit. This is the first time it shows up. Um, this is where God comes to Abraham. He calls him. He says, with you, I'm going to create this whole nation. I'm going to give you children, and through you, I'm going to somehow fix what's broken with the world. And so he says in Genesis 17, 1, now when Abram was 99 years old, remember, he promises him a child. This is what seems so ridiculous. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am, and here's this word, God Almighty. And he says, walk before me and be blameless. Now, he says, I, we, we translate that, I am God Almighty. The word, though, that he uses here is, is a Hebrew word, El, which is just kind of this element, it's kind of just a general, normal word for God, okay, that you would use about this God or that God, it doesn't really matter. But then he says, I am El Shaddai. El Shaddai is probably best translated, God Almighty, God All-Powerful. Um, now, we have to realize this, this, kind of, this kind of blew their doors off because in this day and age, the concepts of God, were they were localized. You know, there's the God of Greeley, there's the God of Fort Collins, and there's the God of Loveland, and there's the God of Windsor, but if you leave your area, your God's not protecting you anymore. This is what Israel constantly struggles with. This is why it's such a shock when God says, I want you to go from here to there, and I'll be with you. And they go, but you're the God of here. And he goes, no, I'm, I'm El Shaddai. My power doesn't have 
limits. I don't have geographical boundaries in any way. And he's constantly teaching them this because this is the culture, this is the water in which they swim. So we see it all the way at the beginning in Genesis, but you go to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, and the same idea of God being all-powerful, Revelation 19.6, it speaks of this sort of poetic picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb is, is, is Christ, and the idea that that last supper that he had, he's finishing it up. This is the end. And this is what said, then John is speaking, this vision that he had, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing waters and like peals of thunder. These are the people, all the people of God worshiping, shouting, hallelujah, for the Lord God almighty reigns. It's that same idea. God's almighty power is probably established, seen, demonstrated, wherever, nowhere better, nowhere more powerfully than in creation itself. He creates, God does something really unique when he creates. The phrase that Christians, uh, kind of the Judeo-Christian worldview has always had about how God, you know, interacts with creation is totally unique in the history of religion. It's this idea that he creates ex, ex, nihilo, n-i-h-i-l-o. This is a Latin phrase that, that the early church, ex, you know, we have, if you look behind you, I see four exit signs. We get our word exit from this idea, out, out of. Ex means out of something. Nihilo, like nada, nothing. God creates out of nothing. There wasn't any kind of like difficult, you know, recalcitrant, rebellious, tough to work with material stuff that he had to like overcome. He didn't have to reshape it. He, he simply creates out of nothing. There's nothing there, and he creates all that is. He brings into existence all that exists outside of himself. And so he's not merely reshaping it. He's, he's speaking it. Genesis 1.1, you remember how the, think about the first couple words of the Bible. If you, if you crack it, open your Bible, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God he created the heavens and earth. Now, that idea stands in sharp contrast to what most of the rest of the world believed at that day. God didn't create. He reordered. He worked against. He, he pushed back against this sort of, you know, difficult stuff, kind of primordial substance, whatever it was. The psalmist reflects on this idea of, man, think about this concept of God. Psalm 33, 9. The psalmist says, Speaking of God, it says, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. This is like king language. Kings do this. Kings speak and they command and stuff happens. God's the king. He's the cosmic king of the universe. In the New Testament, the apostle Paul in Romans 4.17, looking back to Abraham, who we talked about a little while ago, he's thinking about that. And um, speaking of uh, Abraham being called to be the father of many nations. Paul says in Romans 4, 17, Abraham is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. God creates out of nothing this radical idea. So we have to understand this idea stood in sharp contrast to all of the pagan neighbors 
that Israel had. Again, the typical idea was that these gods had to overcome the chaos of the physical world. They had to reorder it. Now, this is a very similar idea that exists today within, within one of our neighboring religions, Mormonism. Within Mormonism, the god of Mormonism is, or I should say used to be, a man. He hasn't existed from all time. He's a man who used to live on his own planet, much like you and I do. And he had his god, and because of faithful service to his god, he was exalted. He became a god, and he was given authority to make, to make fashion reorder his own world and to people it, populate it with those which, which he creates as well. But not, not in the full sense creates. And this is a very sharp, clear teaching within Mormonism. Because, see, God is not the ultimate thing. He's not eternal. He is as much a part of the creation in the big picture as you and I are. And so what, what God does, who they call uh, Heavenly Father or, or Elohim, in the Old Testament, they see God as, he, he takes, the phrase they use is the elements, the stuff, the physical stuff, and he refashions it. He goes to the Home Depot of the universe, and he gets the stuff, and he builds, and he fashions. But he can never be all-powerful, because he's a part. He came out of Home Depot, too, kind of. He's a part of that physical world. Listen to the words of Joseph Smith, the very first prophet, president, revelator, seer of the Latter-day Saint Church. In History of the Church, which is a book that he wrote, volume 6, page 305, he says, I will go back to the beginning before the world was to show you what kind of being God is. What sort of being was God in the beginning? God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. That is the great secret. I say, if you were to see him today, you would see him like a man in form. It is necessary that we should understand the character and being of God. See, he gets that too. What's God like? That's an important question. And how he came to be so. For I'm going to tell you how God came to be God. And then he goes on to explain. We've, we've thought he's existed from all time, but he hasn't. He was on his own world. He was a man once too. And he's exalted. See, the Mormon God, similar to the gods of, of Israel's pagan nations, is not all-powerful because he is just as much an effect of this cause-and-effect world, again, as you and I are. And so this world is an obstacle for him to overcome or to refashion. But it's, it's stated in the, about the biblical God in Scripture that he can do all things. Genesis 18, 14 this is where God comes to Abraham and Sarah. You know, they're old. I mean, their bodies have stopped being able to produce children. And he says, you're going you're gonna to have a child. And through that child, it's going to be nations more than you could imagine, more than the stars in the sky, more than the, the sand on the, on the beach. And, and Sarah laughs. She kind of goes, that's a good one. You know, that's funny. And God's response to her is, is anything too hard for Yahweh? He can do absolutely anything. A couple centuries later, a prophet named Jeremiah, who was, who, who was looking at Babylon coming in and absolutely wiping out Israel, the one that had been promised through you know, Abraham's seed, and they really were. They were tons of people, but they looked like they were going to be wiped out. 
And he asks the same question. Jeremiah 32, 17. He says, oh, sovereign Lord, that's that almighty word, word. You have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and, out, and out, outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. He answers the rhetorical question that God asked his great, 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 whatever, grandmother. The New Testament, it's affirmed too. Matthew 19, 26, Jesus is in, in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, um, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 14, 36. And he says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, but not what I will. I mean, multiple times, realizing everything's possible. There is no limitation. Now, before we go on, I want to just real quickly consider some objections to this idea because there are some common objections. We probably, all of us, I'm guessing, have heard some of these objections to the idea of God being omnipotent, completely sovereign, all-powerful. So what do we mean when we say he is all-powerful, and what don't we mean? See, a lot of people say, okay, you can't, see, you can't do that. You're saying God's all-powerful, but there's a, there's a paradox. There's a problem in saying that it, it kind of never really gets off the ground. Um, if God is omnipotent, and again, we've probably heard these before, um, can, he make, can he make a stone too heavy for him to lift, right? We've heard this one before, right? Because, see, if, if you say, yeah, he can, he can do that, he can make a stone. Well, if he can make a stone too heavy, then he can't lift it. That's something he can't do. He's not all powerful. Okay, well, no, he can't. Well, he can't make a stone too heavy. Well, then that's, again, you're stuck. It's something else that he can't do. So this idea that um, omnipotence just doesn't even make sense. It's, it's incoherent. Um, you know, can God make another God and fall down and worship him? All Many, many of these sort of... Uh, riddles that are thrown out to say, you can't claim God's all-powerful. It just doesn't work. Well, here's what we mean. Let me give you two words. God can do, kind of fun picking different colors, what I'll use this time. Um, God can do anything, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll put this under omnipotence. Meaningful. God can do which is anything that is meaningful, and anything that is consistent with his character. God can do anything that is meaningful or consistent with his character. That, this is what Christians have traditionally meant by this idea of God is all-powerful, limitless. So when we say God can do anything, um, you know, people say, okay, can God make a uh, square circle? Can God make a, a married bachelor, um, you know, the immovable rock, you know, whatever it might be. Um, see, these sorts of, we say God can do anything. The problem is those aren't things. Now, those are, those are structuring together words, but those words don't have any meaning. The concept of a circle can't have angles, so you can't have a square circle, right? The concept of a bachelor is single. The concept of a married person is not single. You can't have a a married bachelor. So these are just combinations of words which when put together are just incoherent. They're not things. They're, they're what we call logical contradictions. So to say that God can't do logical contradictions isn't to say there's something God can't do because these aren't things at all. So you remember God is, remember John 1.1? 1, 1? God is the source of logic. In the beginning was the Word. 
The Greek word for that is logos. In the beginning was the logos. We get a word logic for it. See, logic is just the way God minds, God's mind thinks. So to say God can't do a logical contradiction is to speak of how awesome he is. Uh, this second one real quickly here. God can do anything that is consistent with his character. What do we mean by that? Um, can God lie? Can God have false beliefs? Uh, can God forget things? Can, can he be tempted? Well, no. Um, Hebrews 6.18 says as much. Uh, the author is speaking of how, how sure of a hope we have. He uses the word anchor. He said, our hope and what God is going to do is so absolutely certain because he promised he was going to do it. And here's how we know. Here's, here's how we have an anchor. Verse 18, he says, we know because it's impossible for God to lie. Something he can't do. He can't lie. So he is constrained by his own character. But now here's the thing. Having the ability to say lie, believe false things, you know, whatever we might, might say, those are limitations. See, I can do that. I can lie. I can be tricked. I can be fooled. I can forget. I can, because I'm a limited being. I'm not perfect. So those are limitations. Those aren't things that make a being great. That's, that's what makes a being not so great. It's precisely because God is the greatest possible being that he can't lie, that he can't have false beliefs, that he can't forget that he will be consistent. So saying, saying God does not, cannot do something outside of his character speaks of why he's worthy of being worshipped. See, I'm not being worthy of worship because I can do all those things. God is very different. It shows his omnipotence, the fact that he can do those. Now, real quickly, we've been talking in this series, this idea that, okay, this is not just a theology lesson. This is a, it's, it's a lot of stuff that we're, trying to wrap our minds around, and that's what Scripture is. So we're being faithful to Scripture when we think well, as Jesus said, love God with all of our mind. But the reality is this is, this is not a mere academic pursuit, is it? Because if, if, if what I care about most, if what I love, I'm going to eventually start to kind of become, I'm going to mimic, I'm going to look like, then this is radically practical. So let's look at some of the, the implications or what we call the, the application. If, if what Tozer said earlier is correct, that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, right, because it shapes who we become, um, what's the application of God being omnipotent, all-powerful, completely sovereign? Let me just give you a couple. Number one, I would say, is uh, you are a walking stick of dynamite. God's power, which created the world, spoke, and the stars were scattered. The worlds came into existence out of nothing. Is the same power, Scripture tells us, that is working within you, if you are a follower of Jesus. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's creation language, remember? The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Ephesians 1.19 speaks of his incomparably great power for us who believe 
The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, powers, above every single thing. The same resurrection power, he says, which raised Christ from the dead and defeated every sin, not just of mine, but like of yours. And all history past the billions of people who have lived, those things that you know, we can't get over, I feel defeated by little sins that I keep falling back into, let alone the big ones, and then you pile them all on top of each other. That only, only one power was big enough to defeat all of that. And he says, that's inside you. With the coming of the Holy Spirit after the resurrection, God's power was unleashed in this marvelous, totally different way than it ever had been before. And the book of Acts recounts the story of how the, the apostles who were so you know, scared and nervous and timid and pushing back all the time, all of a sudden have this new boldness. And Jesus said, the Spirit is going to come upon you and you're going to have this power thing. But it's not, it's not you. It's my spirit working through you. John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine. I love how he uses these concrete pictures. I am the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. No limit. But of course, the other side of the coin is, apart from me, you got nothing. You can't do anything. Philippians 4, 13 is this passage that, you know, I remember when I was in high school, this was always on the back of our, like, you know, shirts and stuff, and we thought about sports, right? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Second thing I would say, application, meaning of this is, God's omnipotence means that nothing can defeat God's purposes in your life. That's huge, you guys. Nothing can defeat what God wants to accomplish in your life. Ephesians 1.11 reads, in him we are chosen, having been predestined according to, and listen to this phrase, the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with his purposes, the purposes of his will. Matthew 16, 18, Peter says, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, and on, the, on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail. It's this idea of who is really ultimately powerful. Now, let me give kind of a, 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 a necessary uh, theology of what we mean when we say this, because we don't want to go into a direction that's one-sided. I don't mean to say that just because you're experiencing failure, just because you're experiencing difficulty, you are out of God's will. Because the reality is, God can accomplish sometimes more in your life through failure and difficulty than he can through success. One of my favorite biblical examples of this is Joseph. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? This is toward the end of that first book, Genesis. Um, Joseph's life is punctuated by failure and disaster. He is sold into slavery. After that, he is, he's put into prison because of an unjust accusation for years and years. And yet God was at work in Joseph's life to bring about a powerful result that Joseph could never, never could have imagined, never could have produced on his own. So failure does not mean that you're out of God's will, necessarily. It doesn't mean that you haven't trusted in the power of God. Again, he can accomplish things in our life by failure sometimes that he never could through the victory. In fact, it's, it's during these times of trial, of difficulty, 
that I would suggest we need this right here, this omnipotence thing, more than ever. Um, I don't have a whole lot of space up there. Let me, let me do this, though, because I think this is a kind of a, a visual picture, something that's really helpful to see. Um, this word, El Shaddai, in the Bible, it's uh, in the Old Testament. This is really small, sorry. Old Testament, the word El Shaddai is used, or let me put it this way. The words, this English word, all-powerful, appears 48 times, okay, in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we, we see the word all-powerful, magnificent, 10 different times. You know what's so interesting is where it's stacked. 31 of those is in the book of Job. Nine of those in the New Testament is the book of Revelation. There's something similar that Job and Revelation have in common. They're both pictures of people going, where are you, God? We are losing. You have not been faithful. I don't know if I can trust you. Where are you? Why are you not coming through? My life is not working out as I expected it. I am hurting. People I love are hurting. Where are you? And yet that, those are the books that the word all-powerful, omnipotent, appear more than anywhere else because that is where they are needed. It's, it's at night that light is needed the most, and that's where God shows up. Throughout history, God's people have found themselves facing impossible odds, and it's at these times that they go, you know, that's why Job so often goes and says, God, you're the one who spoke and our world's left into existence. He, he has to remind himself because he's living somewhere between his theology and his biography. And so he has to keep going back. God, there's nothing too difficult for you. I think that's the reason why in the Lord's Prayer, about a year ago we did a study on the Lord's Prayer. The very first thing when he says you pray, start out. Don't start out with all your stuff, all your junk. Start out where you should. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom, you are awesome. You are amazing. There is nothing that you cannot do. Hallowed be your name. Because when I start there, all of a sudden, God is totally adequate for my needs. There is no prayer too hard. There is no need too great. There is no temptation that is too strong. No misery too deep. But that God is not deeper still. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we recognize the reality of this law of love and become. Whatever we, we orbit around, whatever is our greatest concern, our greatest priority, we're going to begin moving toward that, looking like, having deep affinities and loves and affections for and God, we so easily, you know me, you know that I so easily begin to orbit around a million other things besides you, God. And that's when my, my soul, it starts getting sick. And so, Father, this evening, I, I pray for, for myself. I pray for every single person here that this would be a moment at which we, we dislodge those things that we're orbiting around that are good, but they're not great. They're not the best. They're not you. And Father, thank you that you are this fantastic God who is not just personal, but you're multi-personal. 
And so as we orbit around this triune God, we realize that we are hardwired for deep community, deep relationship. God, would you provide that? You know that is our need. And Father, we also recognize that you are omnipotent. You are unlimited in your power. You are El Shaddai, God Almighty. And there is nothing that is too difficult for you. Nothing that you can't accomplish. Your purposes are set. And so it is with something like courage that we wake up and walk out of our house every day without fear because there is a God who holds all things in the palm of his hand. Father, would you help us to live with power, live with courage, not of our own. Apart from you, we do nothing. But God, would would you, every single morning, break the crust of self off and that we would plug back into the source of all power. We would be in the vine, have that, that life flowing through us, God, and that as we, as we interact from the very start, God, we would just take every single moment and be in the flow of your spirit so that you can do phenomenal things through us. And I pray for those who are just in real difficult times that you would breathe, just breathe that into their lives right now, God, a special amount of confidence in who you are and what you can do. Father, we, we thank you that nothing is too hard for you, that you are unlimited. Thank you for your power. And we pray this in that name of power, name above every name, name at which everything in creation shudders. Jesus, amen, amen. I want to I wanna say a benediction over us before we leave, okay? Benediction is invoking God's blessing, a good word on us. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Can we do this? Last thing we'll do and we'll go. Would you stand with me? Let's say this together. Okay, ready? Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Love you guys so much. Hey, I'm going to ask our, our prayer team to come forward like we're doing for this series. I'm gonna, um, if you would like prayer, would you, I'm going to ask our, our prayer team to come to the two stations of the cross, okay? We've got, we've got like homemade um, snickerdoodles and peanut bars and chocolate chip cookies and just wonderful. Save me one. Um, uh, get one of those. And then if, if you want to kind of dialogue for the next few minutes, kind of Q&A, we've said that we're going to do that every, uh, these last couple minutes in the series. Just meet right down here in the center, okay? We'll do that. Love you guys so much. We'll see you this weekend. Thanks for being here tonight.